Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan, and John Engel won't be with us today. He's out on a secret mission, and that's all I can tell you. So I am here with the second part of our examination of minutes 14 through 21, which begin with Tanya leaving the Russian consulate and end with Bond telling M that he really is not too busy at the moment. In between, Tanya is followed by Red Grant to a meeting with Rosa Klebb. Bond gets called away from a date with Sylvia Trench again and meets with M, who explains that a Russian girl wants to defect with a lector decoding device because she has fallen in love with Bond from afar. And today we welcome Monica Germana, professor at the University of Westminster, where she teaches English literature and creative writing. Uh, in English literature, she teaches a course on monsters, a module which examines representation of the monster and the concept of monstrosity across multiple texts and media from Beowulf to, wait for it, Alien. Her work also includes explorations of the Gothic traditions past and present, and most relevant to this podcast is her book Bond Girls, Body, Fashion, and Gender, an exploration of the critical intersections of fashion and gender in relation to the treatment of Bond girls in Fleming's novels and the subsequent film adaptations Thanks for joining us, Monica. Thank you for the introduction, Mitch, and, and thank you and John for inviting me on this uh, on this program, on this podcast series, which I've been uh, following and enjoying immensely. Thank you. Hey, I wanted to ask you something. I was I was thinking about um, when I saw Skyfall, and it got to the third act, and we get to the ancestral home of the Bonds, and it becomes really gothic and my first reaction to that was this reaction that was kind of a, a knee-jerk thing, like, no, Bond isn't gothic, he's, he's modern. And then, almost instantly, I started thinking about how many gothic elements crop up in like the backstories of the various characters, Red Grant and the Full Moon, for example, or Dr. Shatterhand's Suicide Garden in, in You Only Live Twice. And there is this nexus between the gothic and James Bond, isn't there? Absolutely. In fact, I I completely enjoyed uh, that part of uh, Skyfall also because, in fact, for my own selfish reasons, uh, my one of my specialisms is Scottish Gothic. So that was like my two favorite things coming together, Scottish Gothic and Bond. Um, I completely agree with you that there are many darker elements uh, to Bond, perhaps elements that have been underexplored. For starters, I can think of many monstrous elements that uh, we find in the in the uh, villains. Uh, they're often grotesque or um, their bodies are always um, either strangely mutilated or 
lacking or deficient. They are described certainly in uh, through aspects that we would associate with non-human or on monstrous uh, characters. And um, and yes, they, they they return to the ancestral home. Fall, uh, chased by that monster, the quintessential foreign monster that is Silva, was uh, was really a nice gothic touch to to add to to Skyfall. And we were remarking just last week about Red Grant being sort of on this lunar cycle, and it made me always makes me think of the werewolf. <laughs> yes. there's something you know, yes. <laughs> and it's so outlandish. Like that's the other part of it is is you know I feel like Fleming with his deadpan style is at the same time really teasing us and and inviting us to jump into something that's that's it's crazy it's a big old fairy tale almost yeah well i mean it is a what we would call a a romance as in a genre genre fiction non non-realistic genre fiction that is embedded in realistic fiction there are many elements in the fleming novels as we know that are very realistic they come from his own work in intelligence and he's very meticulous in his attention to detail that all comes from you know the realist tradition of the novel but then there are other elements that are completely outlandish and they are fantastic because Bond is not real. Bond is very much a fantasy person. He's a fantasy hero and as such does not belong in a realistic tradition. He's not Mr. Darcy. He's, he's a very right. different kind of uh, <laughs> hero. Sometimes yeah. almost a, a hunter hero, I would say. How did you come to James Bond? Would you, do you remember seeing From Russia With Love the first time or, or do you ha- how is that how did all that work? Yeah, well, it's funny that you should ask, and it, and it was serendipitous that you would ask me to take part in this um, uh, for in, uh, on the podcast for this particular film because I was obviously not born by the time that the early films came out, but they were very popular in Italy. And they were often on TV, and my parents were big fans of Sean Connery. And I can't remember if the first film I saw was Dr. No or From Russia With Love on TV. But certainly I do remember the Rosa Club stiletto, uh, you know, toe shoe Mm -hmm. um, very vividly as one of the most iconic moments in this film franchise that I that really grabbed me. And I and I was really, really taken by that character and um, and in general, the film and, and the character of James Bond. So I would probably say with almost uh, 100% certainty that the first film I watched on TV was indeed From Russia With Love. Then when I grew up and, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, um, we had the, you know, the, the 90s, the, the film with uh, Pierce Brosnan. And I, and I watched uh, GoldenEye. I saw GoldenEye uh, uh, on um, on screen, on the big screen at the cinema. I was not as taken by that film as much as I did by the early films with Sean Connery. For some reason, uh, although I do remember liking the character of Xenia on the top a lot. Um, so I kind of was a little bit less into it for a while and then I got back into it big time with Daniel Craig I really really enjoyed the way the franchise sort of went back to the start really uh, from scratch starting the with the character reboot really uh, with Casino Royale which literally takes the character back to 
its origin, its literary birth. And um, I really like the ways in which um, Craig is a much more physical, visceral and darker bond, really. Um, it's closer um, to the literary bond than certainly Pierce Brosnan, not through fault of his own, obviously, it was the scripts that dictated the kind of character and certainly miles away from Roger Moore. And Vesper is arguably the first goth girl <laughs> in a Bond film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that uh, Xenia Onotop is also fairly gothic. That's true. That's uh, true. You're right. Yeah, her, you're right. her costumes were literally Cruella de Vil meets uh, Morticia Adams. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, could, I, I could see that that was a, a trend that um, existed before um, Vesper and Evergreen. But... Um, Evergreen delivers a fantastic performance uh, um, there and, and Vesper is such an interesting character. And that film and the, and the novel really serves such an important purpose in explaining uh, who James Bond is and uh, what his um, traumas are. Um, I, I argue that Bond is a much more complex character that we often think... Uh, he may be. Um, he and, and I think in Casino Royale, you 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 see the way he is physically and emotionally scarred by the ordeal that he experiences at Le Chiffre's hand, and also um, you know Vesper's betrayal and uh, what follows. So Bond becomes a much um, deeper character in psychological terms than we're accustomed to to think of him. And so much so that when it jumps to the next film from Casino Royale to Skyfall, he's almost an old man. And, you know, I don't know how many adventures he's had in between those that we haven't seen. But, yeah, he is really in he's in rough shape. In, in yes. Yeah, so th there is Quantum of Solace as well in, in between uh, the two. Right. I always think of those as the same movie. But, yes, you're, you're right. <laughs> yes. Well, they are kind of connected. But, yeah, you're right. He, he does age. And we I do like in, in, in Skyfall the idea of a, an aging bond, of a bond that is no longer a younger man, but in fact a man who is, again, wounded, um, very much physically not in his prime. And playing on his weaknesses rather than his strengths make him into a very interesting character. Well, we're not going to get to Bond until the last few minutes of these seven, so let's let's jump into the minutes and and start with sure. uh, with seeing Tanya for the first time coming out of the Russian consulate. And I, I just wanted to ask you, just from a style point of view, mm -hmm. right right off the bat, we've got three, you know, mid century uh, suits on these three on these three women. Indeed. Um, so. The, the girls are presumably all Russian employees of the consulate. Um, they are talking in Russian uh, at the start. Um, I did ask a Russian friend. <laughs> to, oh, did you? Yes, to tell me what they, what they say. As you can imagine, the conversation is not immensely uh, revealing of, of, of the plot, but the, 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 the two girls ask her whether she wants to go out with, with them. And um, Tanya replies, no, I need to go shopping. 
I'll see you later. Um, and then they say, don't be late. Goodbye. Goodbye. So Tanya clearly hasn't revealed what uh, the real reason for her not attending whatever session they're going to go for. Uh, but um, interestingly, she does say she's going shopping and uh, we don't know whether it's clothes shopping or, or other kinds of shopping. But certainly we see the girls are also not only wearing smart clothes, but um, one of them, the one in the middle, you know, she's applying makeup in public and the other one is flaunting a nice handbag. And they're all very nicely dressed, as you say, uh, very middle class looking, fashionable to an extent, if not, um, you know, to the latest perhaps fashion but certainly they are um very very smart looking professional and smart soviet fashion um at this point was entering a a very um, westernized phase uh, of its existence um the russian revolution of 1917 had obviously cut off um, contact with the with the West, and anything that came from the West was uh, was deemed to be um, evil, um, morally wrong. In particular, fashion was meant to be representative of Western fashion. That is, was meant to be representative of not only uh, capitalism and the bourgeoisie and, and, and those values, but also, interestingly, of a very kind of regressive kind of femininity. Um, socialism saw women on the same level as men. Socialism promoted the equality between men and women. Both men and women were supposed to be working for the state and contributing to the state's welfare. And for that reason, for instance, uh, socialist countries have always been much better at supporting women employment, uh, women employment, even even to this day and age. You know, th there's much much more um, support, for instance, for childcare for for women in employment in in countries that have a socialist um, orientation. Um, so what we have in in terms of fashion is uh, different phases of development. To start with, we have complete re um, rejection of Western fashion and attempts at finding a, a different kind of fashion model. So um, constructivist artists in the 1920s, for instance, started designing clothes that were meant to be rational, so efficient, utilitarian, often, frankly, very beautiful designs, um, industrially produced, machine produced, to, to, to show and display the actual mechanical construction of clothing was very, very important. That phase didn't last very long, however. And obviously, under Joseph Stalin, and there was a tendency to isolationist policies, which meant that the, no influence should come from the West and, uh, and that fashion should be centralized. But that centralization was often not very efficient. And also, it didn't actually uh, fulfill the purpose of uh, fashion, which is to be change-led trend-led um, Soviet fashion in, in those decades you know in the 1920s and 30s was completely static um, changeless and yet at the same time attempted to be modern or project a certain ideas uh, a certain idea of modernity what happens in the 1950s is quite interesting because under the leadership of uh, Nikita Khrushchev we have of course a moment of um, relaxation towards the West. And that also um, applied to um, the world of fashion. 
what happened um, was that there was a sort of gradual opening towards the West. Um, Moscow itself started to invest a lot more in in fashion, um, in department stores, as well as uh, um, designs, and started to host and open um, up to the houses of the West. Um, Dior, um, Chanel, all became available by the end of the 1950s in, in Moscow. Obviously, they only became available to the elite, to those who could afford the, the price tags of those designs, which were clearly as exclusive as they, as they can be today. Um, what we have in Tania is a woman, both in the novel and in the film, is a woman who appears to look smart, be interested in looking smart. And according to the kind of diktats of Soviet fashion, she's not particularly experimental at the start. She's quite traditional. The suit is, is fashionable, but not particularly well cut, uh, I would say. And um, interestingly, the brass buttons, the detail of the brass button, to me, suggests a link to Rosa Klebb, who also wears the, you know, a military uniform with brass buttons. And um, interestingly, um, it's beige in color. This is, um, again, going back to the idea that Soviet fashion was not particularly experimental and that, in fact, in the 1930s, there was a an ongoing campaign to educate the Russian middle class to have good taste. It wasn't enough to have money to buy mm, perfume, makeup and nice clothes. You also needed to know how to how to match them. And matching shoes and handbags was a particularly important thing, according to Soviet fashion um, advisors. You shouldn't wear more than three colors. And... Um, and there was also etiquette about, you know, what to do about, you know, public demeanor, makeup, perfume, not smoking in public. And certainly Tanya is well aware of that. The word for this, the only word, the single word used in, in Russian for this is kulturnost. Um, and kulturny is the word that Tanya uses later on as well. When she Really? Yes, when she talks about uh, bond with, with Kleb. And Kulturnost refers to this idea of being cultured, civilized, to know the good things from the bad things, you know, from a taste point of view. Um, so to, to, to have that, that kind of level of sophistication, basically, uh, at your fingertips. And, uh, and so uh, you, you can see that Tanya is fluent in that language. And in the novel, she immediately recognizes that Red Grant is not at all kulturny. He's the anti-kulturny. There's something <laughs> wrong about him. Something, uh -huh. and you know, the fact that he chooses Chianti, drink red Chianti with fish, Bond picks up on that as well. The fact that he doesn't quite know um, the rules of, uh, you know, etiquette of, you know, good taste and good things. You know, it's funny when you said that you, you, we, you discovered that she said she was going shopping Versus saying, oh, I'm going to the library or I'm, I'm going to go sit in the park. I, and I, I wonder if I start looking at Tanya thinking about whether or not she's ambitious, like whether or not there is from the almost from the moment we meet her a desire to get out from under the situation she's in. Like the, Rosa Klebb says she's very loyal to the state. Un, but I wonder sometimes whether she doesn't see a bigger opportunity ahead of her. 
I think she does. I think she has her own mission throughout. And although she's portrayed to be fairly young and naive in the film and the novel, um, I think there's certainly something about her that wants uh, to get out of um, the system, basically. So although her defection is constructed for her, in fact, she jumps at the opportunity. My argument is that that is not because she's in love with Bond, but because she's in love with the West uh, and what uh, the West can do for her. And um, I think there's a lot of clues that, that support that, too. Yes. In, in, in her interest in in textural things and in, you know, she's she's enjoying the ride on the train, you know, uh, until she isn't. And, and she seems to be really thinking very clearly about where she's headed. Yes, and and in in when she's in Moscow, because in the in the novel, the conversation with uh, with Kleb happens in in Moscow. Um, she complains about you know men and women in the metro, you know the crowds, the smells, the fact that in the clubs that she sometimes uh, goes to they play music that's old-fashioned to please what I would imagine she calls the peasants from from the provinces you know she's 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 a bit of a snob in a way she she wants more out of the modernity the the kind of things that she craves and she thinks she will find in the west and and I think at the end of the film this is pretty clear when as soon as she she gets to, in, to Venice, you know, she, you see her um, dressed in completely different clothes uh, that we know she's chosen for herself. Uh, because obviously on the train, she's wearing the lingerie and the fineries that Bond has, uh, has purchased for her. But we assume that in Venice, she goes shopping and she's, she sports this... Um, pistachio and canary um, outfit, really bright colors that Soviet fashion would have precisely frowned upon. But this is Italian fashion. This is Western fashion. And, and her hair is different. She's immediately adapted to the kind of latest taste and sophistications of, uh, of the West. And that's, that's what she's there for, really. And also, she's not at all reluctant to, to get rid of the wedding ring, the wedding band, when they are on the gondola. I'm sorry, I'm spoiling the last <laughs> minutes of the <laughs> you've film. You've ruined it all. Uh, you've, no one, yeah, every, you've ruined it for everyone. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because I feel like Terrence Young with these movies brings his own sense of style and fetishism and taste and, and it, it very much feels a part of Dr. No, even though, you know, I, I get the sense that he worked with Tessa Pendergast in... Dr. No, who was Jamaican, right? Um, someone else has taken over the costuming for the second one, right? Yeah, Jocelyn Rickards. Uh, she was um, Australian-born. Um, she 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 did have a very good career, and and she was quite a, a racy woman herself. I mean, I think she would have made a you know a very good Bond woman, Bond girl, even. She. Um, she was mistress to um, many, uh, including famously the novelist Graham Greene. And um, they were, uh, this is actually so funny when you consider what happens in this film and in the Orient Express, because she was um, caught um, having sex with uh, Graham Greene on a first class carriage uh, train <laughs> um, from <laughs> Southend to London. 
So she was really, you know, into pleasure and um, she was quite outspoken about um, actors and actresses and what uh, their relationship was to, to fashion and clothing. She worked with Marilyn Monroe in The Prince and the Showgirl in 1951. And um, she said she was um, one of the most insecure people um, that she'd ever met. And she had her dresses re um, resized um, so that they would be two sizes smaller in order to appear even more voluptuous than, than she was. I guess we have come to know that Marilyn Monroe was uh, fairly insecure. But um, it was interesting to see that from the point of view of the costume designer. You know, the night that she's, she, the night that she sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, my friend, who it was a friend and confidant of hers, she split her dress that night <laughs> and he sewed her, my friend sewed her back into her dress <laughs> um, before she went out to sing to Happy Birthday, Mr. President. Because she was uh, obviously <laughs> almost bursting out of it. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Literally yeah. bursting out of it. Um <laughs> One of the most interesting things that uh, Jocelyn Rickard says about clothes in, in film, which is a very different uh, way of designing, you know, from clothing for the catwalk or obviously for everyday wear, is that if clothes are well designed, they are probably unnoticeable, which is something similar to what's been said about stage design. You know, you don't want people to remember just the clothes or just the stage design because that takes away from the plot and the characters and the film and so you want them to be blending in you but you also want them to say something about the characters so she said clothes have to send messages subtle messages about for example where that character might have gone to school or you know their their class or um you know income or their, their political and sexual orientations all of that can emerge from from costume design and i think we can see that uh, happening here in uh, particularly when um, you compare tanya then with with rosa Klebb once they finally well not finally it doesn't take long for tanya to to get today to the place where rosa Klebb has set up her office but you see a complete difference there between their two outfits obviously Rosa Klebb is clad in a military um, in a military uniform um, that uh, suggests a more masculine um, kind of uh, femininity, almost an anti-femininity. And I would say she is, in fact, the anti-feminine in the in the film and in the book. This is much more um, overt when uh, she interviews. Um, Tanya she asks her to take her uh, jacket off and she takes a good look at her making Tanya palpably uncomfortable about that kind of uh, gaze and uh, you can see that that gaze is uh, which is um, both endorsed um, by the the spectacles you know uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's yeah. the, those kind of very thick spectacles make you think, you know, she's almost blind. And yet she takes them off and she still seems to see things quite well. Um, in the book, interestingly, um, th the same scene occurs. And, and we we read that um, Rosa Klebb has eyes that are like cameras. They're taking Tanya in like cameras. So there is that sense of voyeurism that really is uh, very strong in, in the scene. 
Daniela Bianchi actually in production um, notes said that uh, in fact um, those glasses were so thick that uh, made uh, Lotte Lenia um, really stumble upon things because she couldn't see anything so they had a, a lot of laughs um, because <laughs> she literally couldn't see anything through those glasses. I really noticed how sheer the blouse was. It's interesting when she removes her jacket that, yes. that it, there's there's something very revealing about what she's wearing underneath her jacket, which I thought was. Um, what, what do you what did you make of that? Yes, well, I think clearly that is meant to show show off um, Tanya's beauty. Um, obviously, also again reinforcing the idea that uh, that kind of gaze is not meant to be looking at i don't know tanya's fitness for instance but is looking at tanya as a sexual object interestingly i don't know if you are familiar with the novel but the the sheer fabric um is an inversion of what happens in the novel where the the, the scene is so bizarre um after <laughs> yeah. they have a semi-formal interview, although this is also set up as a, almost as a date because Klebsch champagne and chocolates available right. uh, for, for Tanya, which would have been an incredible luxury in, you know, in uh, Russia in, in the 1950s. And, um, and then um, after sort of giving her the task and making it clear that her body belongs to the state, that she basically has no choice about what to do in this mission. Um, she disappears and she reappears wearing a very um, semi-transparent, we're told, uh, gown with lingerie um, showing through. So it is actually Rosa Klebb that uh, appears as this kind of parody of femininity, of stylized femininity, excessive femininity. But she looks grotesque because her body is not particularly attractive. In fact, we're told that she's incredibly unattractive. In, um, in the novel earlier on, Christine has described her as short, squat, with thick legs and very strong legs for a woman. Or sorry, uh, very strong calves, I think, for a woman. And, uh, yeah, it's so grotesque. That yes. scene is is. I'm really glad that <laughs> that didn't make it into the film. Yeah, it was. It's so outlandish. And talk about the monstrous. I mean, it's right there. It is clearly, uh, I think, showing uh, Fleming's own anxieties about uh, homosexuality and particularly yeah. lesbian women. That you know, things that reappear again in Goldfinger, with the character of Pussy Pussy Galore. But yeah, Rosa Klebb is really described as a kind of deviant feminine. Um, Fleming says she's a sexual neuter. I don't know what he means exactly by that and whether he means that she's bisexual, possible, possibly, sorry. Um, she's certainly got a lot of uh, kind of phallic imagery um, going on. With her stick that she's carrying around? Yes, the cane that she keeps <laughs> yeah. snapping around. And then, yeah. of course, at the end, we know that she literally penetrates bond or attempts to penetrate bond with yeah. her with her you know stiletto uh, that comes out of the uh, toe of her shoe in fact in the novel he leaves 
she leaves him for dead. Um, he's um, we don't know what's going to happen to him. And there were many fans that wrote outraged uh, to Fleming, asking what was going on. You know, do we do we need to start mourning the death of our hero? Is he going to come back? And he had a great. Yeah, great fun because obviously he he was very self-conscious of the cliffhanger and of the fact that he was uh, doing everything to increase, in fact, his, uh, his um, character's popularity. In fact, he had already uh, completed the, in the first draft of uh, Dare to Know, so he, he knew that his character was very much alive. I think he was working out a lot of ambivalence that he had about these books. I, don't, I think that's why we we get 70 pages or whatever without Bond ever showing up because I think he he was indulging himself in the things that he was particularly interested at the time I think yeah I mean he's trying to experiment with 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 his character and as you say with the other things that interest him um one of the things that really fascinates me about the books is that the villains are always so charismatic um, and in fact, if you look at the titles of the of the novels, many of them actually are a credit to the to the villains. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Doctor No, um, not Live and Let Die, but uh, Moonraker for sure. Um, mm -hmm. From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, um, Octopussy. Yeah. So, and the Man with the Golden Gun. There are many references to the fact that the villains are, in fact, the most charismatic uh, characters in, in the novels. And, and Fleming really had imagined his main character, Bond, to be a blunt instrument. He wanted Bond to be almost like the passive, reactive uh, character to things that happen to him, not actually being the initiator of things. Sure, he's clever, he's handsome, he's um, stylish, um, but he doesn't initiate things. You know, he's not, uh, he's an original thinker only when he's placed in a position that, or in, in, a, in a problematic position which he needs to solve somehow. But for himself, you know, he's, he's actually a boring and dull man, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, want, I wanted to point out something that I noticed in terms of, of, of Tanya at the very end of the scene, mm -hmm. because when the initial seduction or, or whatever we want to call this or negotiation, when Cleb touches her knee, she shoots her a sort of withering glance and um, acknowledges it and Cleb removes her hand from her knee. But at the end, when she's decided she's going to take on this task, then Cleb touches her shoulder and her hair and um, Tanya tolerates it. Like she, if, talk, if there's any Im indication that this is an ambitious, uh, strong character, it's in the way that she looks, kind of looks away from Cleb and, and just lets her do what she does because she has, you know, bigger fish to fry at this point. Yes, I mean, you could also say that she's uh, completely disempowered in, in, in other ways. And there is a very interesting parallel here between what happens here and what happens in the next, you know, in, in, in the parallel scene, which is Bond's interview with M. Effectively, what's happening here is that the respective governments of these people are pimping them out. They are yeah. <laughs> placing them in a position where they have no choice no consent, you know, you're doing this. 
um, Bond is, you know, he's told, you know, see that you do meet the expectations of this young lady. So the, there is no way out for either of them. And although they are the tasks at hand are described as in honeyed tones, uh, I mean, Rosa Klebb says this is going to be a delightful um, task, a, a labor of love, she says. And um, similarly, in uh, when M interviews Bond, the the chapter actually in the novel is called uh, "A Piece of Cake." So, in both, uh, th- there is a real parallel between the two the two situations, and, and neither character is empowered because both are being told what to do. Yes, and Kleb says you'll never leave this. You won't leave this room alive. Yes, you, you will die. Cons- you, you, you know. Die. So, so yeah. what else would you do? Of course, you're gonna accept whatever conditions are are given to you. And if it is even to give in to Kleb's sexual overture, well, so be it. I think. I just think there's a strength in the performance that it, that is that is admirable. You know, given what she's having to endure from from Kleb at that point. Yeah, she's very she's very controlled throughout and uh, that's very true um she and i think as you say it may show that actually this is not a young and naive girl she's 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 much more mature uh, and, and and she knows what she's doing she knows what the stakes are basically let's move to finally our glimpse of the real james bond not a guy in a mask being chased through a garden by red grant but but the actual james bond and Sylvia Trench, um, I I don't know. Do do English people lie around in in boats on the banks of of rivers all the time? Um, I wouldn't know. Um, back in the sixties, <laughs> what they would have done. Um, I, certainly, I mean, public display of flesh was relatively new. I would say in 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 the sixties and. What we have here is obviously uh, Sylvia Trench sporting a really nice and fashionable bikini. But again, most women wouldn't have worn bikinis for, for a long time still. Um, bikinis would have been known to the fashion world since the 1940s when uh, the first bikini was um in designed and uh, advertised in the West. I mean, that is not to say that women didn't wear two-piece uh, bathing suits before then. In fact, the ancient Romans uh, have mosaics in Sicily that show that um, women wore bikinis even even then. But in the West, uh, the bikini makes its entrance in 1946, so just after the war, really, and with um, fashion designers. There are two fashion designers that work around the same year. Jacques Aim, he produced the first two-piece swimsuit. He called it Atomic because he was small. And then Louis Riard um, named, renamed his own design Bikini after um, the Bikini Athol that had been the site of um, an atomic explosion in 1946, um, suggesting that this kind of bathing suit would have been as explosive, you know, a bombshell, so to speak. And uh, yes, of course, we have Ursula Andres sporting the most iconic white bikini in uh, in the previous uh, Bond film. 
even then, however, she was not, even though she's the most memorable, probably, uh, bikini moment in cinema, she was not the first. Uh, Brigitte Bardot um, had sported a bikini in a film called Manina, the girl in the bikini, funnily enough, which came out in 1952 in France and uh, later 1959 in the UK, 1958 in the US. Um, so that was the first moment in in in. Western cinema, where we would see a, a woman in, in a bikini. So they were relatively new uh, and kind of sporadic um, moments. So you would definitely notice them. However, I would argue that the focus here is on Bond's body rather than um, Sylvia Trench. Yeah, and his, his swim trunks are that blue again, that powder baby blue that seems to be the color constantly identified with him, whether it's the robes in Dr. No or the blue polo shirt that he wears in Dr. No or his blue jumper and goldfinger with uh, made out of terry cloth I, I, what, any thoughts about this color being Bond's color I would say um, I haven't really thought too much about it. Uh, obviously, you know, um, Fleming was in, in naval intelligence and so there, there is a connection with the sea. To me, it suggests some kind of almost... Um, uh, integrity and how, I want to say innocence, but obviously Bond is not innocent. He's 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 uh, he, you know he's he's got license to kill, but there is a, a level of I guess um, moral integrity and purity, if you want to call it that way, that he, he perhaps represents. He's a force for good, and in his nakedness, I would say, or semi nakedness, I should say here. You see him actually as a vulnerable man, as a man who has indeed been wounded. I think the scar is immensely important in uh, in the Bond um, canon. Mm-hmm. He is scarred, um, obviously, in Casino Royale by his uh, ordeal with uh, La Chiffre. We know he's from the novel that he's tortured in a very very graphic way and um, regardless of what um, biological sex you are you do cross your legs when you read that scene um, because Bond is battered and he does feel that um, he's um, emotionally um, um, and 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 physically scarred Um, he 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 says that he was left with the with the with the notion that he may be in fact impotent after after this uh, torture, so there is something about bond and masculinity and manhood that are all kind of tied up with this idea of um, the the body of the veteran. I would say um, bond is the this kind of fantasy man who is born out of the post war climate in in the West in in Britain in particular, but it, but I would say that the figure would appeal to the U.S. audience in exactly the same way. And he does represent this kind of um, scarred man, uh, as a, a man who has, however, come back on its feet and he's, in fact, stronger than ever. So he, he becomes a kind of idealized form of masculinity that may hide his wounds, and, and he most often does that through, through his clothing. And I would say the suit in particular represents his own armor, modern-day armor, um, that makes him look perfect, immaculate, impeccable, uh, flawless. And he plays off the scar as as a joke. You know, he's you know he he doesn't he doesn't acknowledge that that was 
that that scar is painful or anything. He, he turns it into a, I just have not turned my back on any women since. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed, indeed, and um, and obviously in the in the film and in the novel, um, the scar plays an important part because it's a distinctive element in in his body, and that's how Tanya will recognize him and be sure that it, that this is uh, in fact um, James Bond. But um, but yes, and the the interaction he has with Sylvia Trench here is also important because it introduces and underscores the theme of um, his desirability to women. Uh, we know that Bond is desirable. We know that um, from his previous interaction with you know Honey Ryder in um, and Sylvia Trench, of course, in Doctor No. But even for those audiences that would have been new to the character. This introduces him as a man who's successful with with the women because, you know, Sylvia Trent, she can't get enough of him and she pouts and, you know, she complains. Mm -hmm. She's hungry, but we know that perhaps that hunger is not just for food. And uh, eventually she does use some kind of persuasive tones because uh, Bond delays his important appointment uh, with M um, and stays a little bit behind in his Bentley. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we've also. I think it's so interesting that we meet him in Doctor No at the card table, and I don't really count the f the fake out at the beginning in the garden. So we meet Bond as a lover in From Russia with Love, which just seems thematically perfect with with where we are and what this movie is about. And I've maintained that this is this ups the sex quantity for, for Bond films. Um, whereas Dr. No may have been about fantasy and escape and pleasures and beautiful beaches. Um, this is about, this is about sex. Yeah. Pretty much it, all the way through. It's, it's about sex and it's about female desire, which is even more important. And I would say more, more radical, particularly, you know, within the historical context of, of the novel, although the 1960s war, the time where, you know, women were starting to get more, much more liberated and emancipated in their expressions of their sexuality. And clearly what Sylvia Trench represents is precisely that model of Western emancipated um, woman who is not mm -hmm. afraid of expressing her desire and in fact is quite vocal about her desire. Bond she gets her hand slapped by Bond. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Which is so strange. <laughs> yes, but that is, I would say, a less problematic sort of act of microviolence than what happens on the train with Tanya where he slaps her right across yes. the face. And that is a exactly. much more um, problematic moment. Um, but um, I would say that there are reasons for that as well in, in the film. I would say here, though, as you say, it is about female desire. It is about uh, it is both about female desire and Bond's desirability. Uh, and we see the emphasis is placed on his body. You know, it's he masculinity as a spectacle really here. He's standing up. We see him from all angles. His bodybuilder's body, you know, Sean Connery's bodybuilder's bodies um, mm -hmm. couldn't be uh, more on display than it than he is here. The shorts are very short. He's wearing no shirt. And we see him topless a few more times later on in Istanbul. So definitely there is much more emphasis, I would say, on, on male, on the male body than in, in this case than there is uh, on the female body, even though we do see a woman in a bikini as well. 
Yeah, that 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 invitation for all of us to look at him and to admire him, um, you know, no matter, you know, no matter what. Like I've I've one of our guests made the point in the Doctor No series that you know these Bond films became a, a way for gay men to go to the movies together and um, n not have anyone question it. And yet there is definitely something um, being presented for whatever eye you want to bring to this. You know, he is really impressive and we are invited to look at him yeah and uh, and i would say that really shows um, a much more nuanced approach to the gays in in those films i mean a lot has been said or was said in the past um through the lens of feminism and otherwise that you know women are just eye candy in the bond films they are they're, they're just there for for display and they're decorative and i and you know trophy eye candy all the rest of it i would say that's not necessarily true of, of all characters some of them are uh, but m many of them perform different actions and as well as that, you know, there is that thing of the male, the, the reverse male gaze. Call it the female gaze, call, call it the queer gaze. But certainly masculinity is also the center of attention in the focus, particularly with Sean Connery. And then later, I would say with Daniel Craig, much less so with uh, Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, but certainly very much so with George Lazenby. I mean, he was a model. And there's that moment in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service where he has that kind of white frilly shirt and it's all wet. And, you know, basically mm -hmm. it's like a wet shirt competition. But uh, for for a bloke, you know, he, he shows off his... Um, his body him um, in the same way that uh, uh, a female uh, would would in fact I again although uh, in that film Diana Rick shows her immense talent as an actor and she's beautiful and elegant and stylish we see I would say more flesh uh, again for um, on the male counterpart than we do for and I think that, and again, I think it's so much of it's Terrence Young because when you go to Goldfinger and the other guy, Hamilton, directed Bond films, he does not have the same gender fluid, you know, approach. There's just something about Terrence Young's ability to just really revel in every single character's physicality and yeah. really invite us to look. I mean, he's a, he's a real, he's a fetishist in the, best possible sense I think um, I don't know there's a sophistication about Young's eye that I, I find really interesting particularly in the Bond films he never would do it in any of his other films he, 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 there was something really special about his connection to these movies I agree with you and he managed also to put uh, to go back to the previous minutes uh, to put um, Lotte Lania um, at ease she was a bit uncomfortable about the lesbian under text of of the of the scene but he according to the production notes he made her feel at ease and he was showing her and Daniela Bianchi what to do and how to move in that scene so that uh, you know the women then felt comfortable with each other so yeah as you say there, there is a definitely a, a kind of gender fluid vision there and uh, that underpins the directorial um, guidelines which is which is great there's real charm in Sylvia's reaction when she realizes that she's won and she's going to, you know, get what she wants. And she sort of applauds herself, which I just think is a really sweet 
touch, you know. Yes, absolutely. She again, she, she as you say, she she got what she wanted, and she's very pleased to 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 stay that he's staying behind. And you know, why not? I mean, he's he's you know he's clearly decided that the old case, as he calls her, <laughs> is um, is worth uh, looking into for a little bit longer than uh, than anticipated. And not to be outdone by uh, Tanya, but Moneypenny is wearing a sort of sheer blouse in that scene when she's talking to Bond on the phone, I noticed. Yes. Moneypenny is, uh, again, uh, I think, endorsing the idea of Bond's desirability, but, al- but also, again, of female desire, because she's an actively desiring woman. These, the sort of secretary um, character in the 1950s and earlier was um, often represented as a you know a woman who was hoping to settle down with uh, her boss or another co-worker and so that would have been an opportunity almost like a platform or a springboard for the next step in life women were not typically expected to work forever in fact they were expected to you know to be mothers and have children but I'm never quite sure that Money Penny is after that at all. Um, I think Money Penny is really in for for the game as her, herself. She loves flirting. She enjoys, you know, when she's listening into the conversation to all the saucy details. Uh, you, know, you know, the conversation that goes on between Tanya and and uh, Bond later on when they're in, in Istanbul. And she's mm-hmm. like. There, you know, with her pencil in her mouth, totally t- taking in all the saucy details. Now, this is not a woman who is in love, because a woman who is in love would have been jealous and bitter and, you know, really annoyed at the fact that, you know, Bond is, you know, somewhere else enjoying himself with another woman. She's she's totally, you know, enjoying the, the, the action there, too. The way she's dressed suggests, you know, the kind of level of professionalism, the sort of professionalism meet femininity, which would have been expected of, um, of her kind of um, professional um, role. We, female secretaries were expected to be desirable, not necessarily because they were expected to provide sexual favors for their employers, but desirability and attractiveness were certainly important qualities in those uh, in, in those roles. But nevertheless, as I said before, she's um, throughout the franchise, and she has obviously evolved, um, she's never really quite desperate uh, f- in the sense that she's um, she's not going to do a- she, you know she's 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 going to die because Bond doesn't want her. She flirts and she enjoys her f- her flirtatious moments, but she's um, she's also her own woman. Significantly, her fashion sense also develops. Um, here in the 1960s, she's still very feminine. She's wearing a blouse, but you know it's it's a very feminine blouse. So she's wearing pearls, which um, kind of goes with how um, Money Penny and in general the the secretaries are described by Ian Fleming as the pearls and twin set, um, meaning that you know they were kind of refined girls um, of mm-hmm. a certain class, and um, you know she's she's obviously. Um, keen to show her femininity in the, in the workplace, but without too much fuss, without 
too many frills. And that was the important thing about professional wear. You know, women were supposed to negotiate their femininity in a way that they weren't the, the kind of femme fatales or they weren't too sexy. They were, you know, feminine enough to, to, to be distinguished, to, to be differentiated from men because to be uh, mimicking men would have also been a, a no-no in fashion mm-hmm. terms and gender terms. All of this really feeds into that story that Lois Maxwell tells that she had invented a backstory for Bond and Money Penny that they had gone away and had a a lovely weekend together uh, years before and at the end of it said okay that's that now it's back to business and that confidence of like she knows quite a lot about James Bond maybe more than Sylvia Trench does because they had this this special thing uh, it, it really does bring great strength to to her character in these in these scenes. I would say so. I, w- I would completely agree. And and you can see it develop throughout the the franchise. The Timothy Dalton films were perhaps I would say a low point from a money penny point of view. The the script was very kind of um, showing or really pigeonholing Manny Penny as this kind of desperate uh, girl yeah. just waiting for for attention. And he even slaps her bottom at one stage in, uh, I can't remember whether, whether it's um, in The Living Daylights or License to Kill, but you can distinctly hear the sound of bottom slapping, which is <laughs> really not really very yeah. acceptable, yeah. even then. And then... With Samantha Bond in the 90s, you get this amazing duet with or duo with um, M played by Judy Dench. So they are the kind of power couple. Um, they are, you know, both wearing suits, uh, very professional. Um, they are obviously different from each other. Dench has much more authority, M has authority and Money Penny performs an administrative role, but nevertheless, uh, Samantha Bond's Money Penny is much stronger. She knows how to put um, Bond in his place. She flirts with him, but she also tells him, "Hang on, you know there are boundaries here, and I have a life that's very important." You know, she has you know relationships and dates, and you know she makes sure that Bond knows that you know. Yes, it's okay to have this kind of flirtatious thing going on in the office. But by the way, I've got other things to do as well. And that, again, continues with the newest uh, Money Penny um, performed by Naomi Harris. And in um, the last film, Spectre, uh, she tells Bond, you know, this is life. You should try it sometimes. Reminding him that, you know... Work is one thing and life is another. And the thing about Bond is that he's all work, that there is no private life to him. They, you know, whatever relationship goes on in the background fades I- I- inevitably. So he's ultimately a very lonely um, man. Yeah. I wanted to just add that Terrence Young apparently uh, didn't like the shirt that Bond had for the scene by the river. And so they switched shirts. True. So he has this blue checked shirt to the car. But... When we get back to the office, he's changed his shirt. So yes. I, I, I don't know how we can explain that, but, but I guess he went home and changed his shirt or had a spare shirt in the office or something. He must have had a spare shirt in the Bentley, I would say. 
Yeah. Um, it's also perfectly, you know, the whole attire is perfectly immaculate. You know, there is not a crease in sight, um, which is uh, obviously typical of Bond, no matter what uh, fight or um, mission or uh, stunt is involved in, is always um, ultimately rather impeccable, turn, uh, well turned out. The, the suit is obviously very important, as is the trilby hat that he throws at the hat rack to, in, a, in a moment of flamboyance, which is immediately kind of frowned upon by M. He obviously has done the show for Manny Penny, didn't expect M to be lurking behind the door. The whole ensemble um, obviously is the epitome of Bond fashion. The suit um, and the accessories were designed by Anthony Sinclair. Anthony Sinclair was, was indeed Terence Young's um, tailor. Um, Sinclair was based in Mayfair, um, Savile Row, which is the fashion district that looks after gentlemen's fashion traditionally. So it is where the English gentleman goes to have his bespoke suits made. Bespoke is very important in the 1950s and the 1960s when the films are made. It represents the, the class distinction uh, between the other um, average men in Britain who would have been, after the war, penniless, still you know, uh, working with the within the austerity measures that Britain had in place, and wearing mostly the demob suits, the suits that were given out for free by the government. And they were... Wow, I didn't know about that. They gave... So the government gave everyone a suit. Well, the, the former soldiers, yeah, the veterans. The soldiers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, in place of their uniforms, they got the demob suits. And they were very kind of um, um, boxy and not particularly mm -hmm. well-designed, machine-produced. Um, I think... Um, I, I have to say, I think they were free, but maybe they were just um, available through the ration books, so they were kind right. of partly subsidized. But anyway, they were very, you know, widely available and for, for the average man. But the, the former um, uh, officers, you know, the gentlemen, would have wanted to distinguish themselves in, in different ways. And they did that sartorially through their bespoke suits, which would have looked, you know, a million pounds uh, in terms of their you know, compared to the, the mob suits because of the materials, but especially because of the cut. The cut was meant to measure, which meant that, you know, the, the, the suits would hang perfectly on the bodies of these uh, former gentlemen officers. This particular um, suit is called the conduit cut, which has been become synonymous with, with James Bond. You can still buy it t t today. The Anthony Sinclair brand still exists, although it was taken over by another tailor in Savile Row. And um, it, it, it represents the kind of um, tailored look that Bond, that, that shows off um, Sean Connery's athletic build. The, mm -hmm. the waist is uh, slightly nipped. The shoulders are broad, but not padded. The, um, the general kind of look is, is very fluid and very streamlined without being fussy. And there are some very important and minimal details such as the pocket square that's just um, peeking out mm -hmm. and the knitted silk um, um, tie. The shoes are black. Um, you don't see them here. 
Um, but um, overall, this kind of look was very much uh, what we would identify as the kind of um, continuation to the British dandy uh, tradition. Uh, the dandy, uh, which is a 19th century um, concept in, in men's wear in Britain, was a gentleman who would be very well uh, dressed, very stylish. And the dandy's style relied on the, the small details, the small details that could tell a man's taste, basically. So the difference between a, a gentleman and an average man in terms of class would be that the gentleman would have taste and they would have taste and they would show that taste in their choices they would make with their tailors. What's the significance of the trilby hat? Well, the trilby hat is part of that, you know, the details of the, um, the w what is called the, the Edwardian uh, revival after the war in the, in the, in the suits in the British gentleman suit. So the Trilby hat would be a very um, common aspect of this um, um, outfit, or, you know, put it all together to, with a um, rolled up umbrella, you know, polished shoes and other details such as the turn back cuffs. You see the turn back cuffs on uh, the Dr. No um, tuxedo really well uh, when mm -hmm. um, Bond is first introduced. We see his hands and we see his uh, his sleeves, and on those sleeves uh, are turned back cuffs. And the turned back cuffs were a very nice sartorial detail that Fleming used to have, and Sinclair uh, also uh, clearly imported in in his designs in his um, in his suits. On you see the turn and, and a different kind of turned back cuff here on Bond's shirt. It's called a cocktail turn back uh, you see it later when uh, he's actually talking to to M and all, all all of these all of those details represented that kind of um, understated elegance um, the bespoke tailoring that uh, distinguished English gentlemen's style and fashion so there was a touch of military in the ways in which the the suits uh, are designed with broad shoulders and nipped waist to almost like, you know, the tailored um, uniforms of officers. But there is the, 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 the other elements, you know, the, the pocket um, square and the, the tie, the silk tie. They're all kind of representative of that kind of luxurious feel that uh, the suit should have conveyed. It should be said that unlike Sinclair and unlike Fleming, who were um, upper class uh, gentlemen, Sean Connery wasn't, and he wasn't at all used to wearing suits um, before he's, he, shoot, he shot um, the, the first film. So Terence Young uh, took him under his sartorial arm and um, taught him how to wear a suit because it's not just a matter of you know buying a suit and, and wearing it it's how you wear it so he suggested that connery wore the suit at all times in, even in his sleep and apparently he did so 
Um, so he slept in his suits to, to kind of get the feel for it, to, to, to know what to do with it. And he did. And he, he, he did it with panache. He, and he did it so well that eventually he fell in love with, the, with this kind of look. And he, and he continued to sport that look even after he finished you know, with Bond. He continued to wear um, tailored uh, bespoke um, suits for himself, which he, which he purchased you know, for good money. They weren't cheap at all. But obviously, he had the money to spend. <laughs> yeah, and he's also known for um, occasionally taking the suits with him on different on different uh, films as well. I, I yes, hear. indeed, he did. He did. Because <laughs> he would like to save a little money here and there when, when he could. Why not? Uh, so uh, when we, as we move into M's office, and we pass, we do get a glimpse of Major Boothroyd, who we'll get to in the next in the next few minutes. Um, I I wanted to talk about. Um, M and the way that M is dressed versus the way that Bond is dressed is it is there a significant class distinction that can be gleaned from the the the, the two different costumes of the of the men? I'd say rather than class is um, um, age and um, and fashionability. Um, M is much more old fashioned and less trendy than mm-hmm. less fashionable than than bond is um so the the thing about bond's fashion is that his style is both um classic and to an extent timeless but also roots rooted in the specificity of the 1950s and 60s whereas um m seems to be less in in tune with that kind of fashion he's still you know very very well dressed but the, the color and the cuts and the fact that he's wearing a bow tie, you know, during the day rather than a less um, elegant or less um, sort of formal uh, tie suggests um, that is not um, as um, casual, if that's the word, um, the right word, as, as Bond. Bond is more relaxed, shall we say, more, more modern in one word mm-hmm. than, than M is. Do you think 20 years from now, when we look back on the current um, Daniel Craig movies uh, with their really sort of overly tailored suits, like it seems like we're in a phase right now where suits are just, they, they always look a little too small, you know? They are and ridiculously only a certain... tight, yes. Thank you for saying that. And um, yeah, I wonder whether the, the 20 years from now, people will look at that and say, what, what were they thinking with those ridiculously tight suits? I think we're already saying that <laughs> in some way. <laughs> But there are reasons for that as well, I would say. One of the reasons I think Craig's tights are so, uh, sorry, um, Craig's suits are so tight. Obviously, fashion is is part of that. But also, he actually bulks up a lot when he's um, training to be Bond. He doesn't, he said that before, he's not always that muscly. He does put a lot of bulk on as he's, training so when when the suits are made and they have the measurements have to be taken in advance you know you can't just turn them uh, around in, in, in 24 hours so the measurements are made uh, early on and then sometimes the suits indeed are i think too tight for that reason because the there's a mismatch between the uh, the original measurements and the the final measurements the other reason i would say is that the the sort of are fit for purpose in the sense that they want to 
display the muscular body underneath. Um, so they're they're the opposite of the looser cut that uh, Roger Moore would have sported, for instance, or Timothy Dalton. They are really showing um, the, the, the the really bulky body underneath. So, yes, they're smaller, possibly for a production um, problem, um, but also because I think they're meant to actually fit really, really tightly around this super muscly body. It's not the suit that you want to see me in, uh, or 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 my weatherman on TV. They're they're wearing <laughs> the short. short I don't know. Seats. British British weathermen yeah. tend to wear also ridiculously tight suits. I find. <laughs> really. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, I I wanted to, um, as we're here in M's office, I just point out that it's the more or less the same office from Doctor No. They will get a beautiful makeover in Goldfinger, but I think they've pretty much pulled out the same sets with the same wallpaper. Yes. Uh, faux wood wallpaper. Um, but there's a really interesting performance beat that I wanted to point out with Connery. When he's handed the picture of Tanya, it's really strange because he's talking to M. He looks at the picture, and he truly stops and looks at the picture and keeps talking to M, and then comes back and does this really big double take as if, oh, now I see her. And I feel like that may be one of the only kind of missteps in the performance or maybe it, it, it strikes me as phony i just wondered whether anybody else had a thought about that i think he was concerned i mean in the book he's concerned bond is concerned that he won't be able to perform the the act that he's asked to perform basically to to sell his body um for for the lector or the specter as it is called in in the novel it's like can you sell yourself like this can you you know, and he's, he talks about, you know, gold diggers, you know, women, female gold diggers, you know, they've been doing this for, for centuries, but can I do it? Can a man do it? Can I be convincing when I'm sort of, and I think he's picturing a rather unattractive, you know, uh, woman at this point uh, as, uh, you know, a decoder who works in maybe in an archive, not particularly glamorous, not particularly attractive. And I see the way he turns around is because he sees actually, well, it's not going to be that hard to actually be convincing. Yeah. yeah, but he seems to miss it at first, which I think is really is interesting. Maybe you're right. Maybe he's so busy thinking about what a what a strange what a dreadful task this is going to be that he doesn't even give it a, a, a first glance. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. There is a moment of hesitation there. And uh, I, I don't know. I think he's thinking. I think he's... Uh, uh, he's distracted by the, you know, he's, he's really f f excited at the prospect of getting his hands on the machine to begin with. And even when they have, I don't want to, you know, take over the other minutes, uh, when, when he is with Tanya, the, the ways in which their foreplay goes is basically all around the machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. He's, he's far more interested in the machine at that point. Do you have any final thoughts that, to to wrap these minutes up, or anything that we've we've skipped that you had in your notes? Um, I don't think so. I think um, the I think we've covered a lot of ground. Actually, I'm 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 really glad that uh, we did this, and this scene is you know has a lot in it that uh, you know that sets the the story forward you know you got you know the female desire in both Sylvia Trench and Manny Penny and uh, Rosa Klebb 
which shows the ways in which uh, female desire and the female gaze operate in, in, in very, as we said before, gender fluid uh, ways. Uh, and I'm very interested in, in, in that kind of uh, aspect of reading bond against the, the, the normal kind of um, grain. Um, bond is more than a sexist uh, hero or anti-hero. There's much more complexity to, to him and the sexuality uh, at work. So yeah, I think I think we covered enough. Well, I, we're really grateful for you taking the time to do this. Is there any social media or anything you would like to plug, announce? Yes, I'm on Twitter at Monica Germana, um, and that's all really. Um, so I'm also on on on, uh, on Instagram, but mostly active on 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 Twitter. So yes, people can follow me uh, on that. Thanks again to Monica Germana for taking time to discuss minutes 14 through 21 with us. And I'd like to invite everyone to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com alien minute, where we have quadfecta episodes, DVD commentaries, and all sorts of other goodies for only two bucks. So we'll see you next time 